as the crow flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. <laughs> Lyle, Lyle Benjamin, welcome to the podcast. So it's Saturday night. It is April 10th? Uh, 11th today. It's April 11th. And uh, we are in the, the post-coronavirus world. Uh, what was your day like today, Lyle? And how was it different than it had it been 19, 2019? A year ago, I would have still been a farmer, uh, um, and I would have. Oh, this time of year, I would have been just getting ready to start seeding. Uh, this time of year, we'd be getting equipment ready, so getting the air drill ready, getting the sprayer ready, uh, greasing things, and pulling some maintenance on different things. Um, so that was April a year ago. Uh, as of February one, I'm no longer a farmer, and so. I'm now an eight to five kind of a guy. So my Saturday, I wake up and hang out, chill out, eat breakfast with the family just a little bit. And then, um, as, uh, we're, we're kind of cleaning the house a little bit and packing things up and getting ready to make another, uh, transition here one of these uh, days. So today was kind of packing up the office a little bit and packing up the house. And that, that was my day. And how is your family different now? Coronavirus is going on. Is this pretty much what you would have done anyway? This is kind of a normal Saturday. Yeah, the, I, I would say the boys in this corona environment are uh, bored out of their head. Uh, you know, schools closed. They're 10 and 13, so they miss the socialization with their friends. Uh, they get to do the digital stuff, you know, Google Classroom, Google Hangouts with during the school day. And so they, they've had a little bit of interaction that way. But outside of that, they're, they, they'd rather be with kids and, and be out running and doing things and throwing rocks and sticks at each other and, and playing in the forts and, and doing all that sort of thing. Today it snowed on us. Uh, we got about four inches of snow out here. So um, it was a good day to kind of stay hunkered down in the house and stay warm and drink cocoa a little bit. But um, that's that's kind of what uh, normal family day is here. Usually Saturdays I cook breakfast if I'm around and, um, we have kind of a slow Saturday morning and then we roll into whatever the day's event is. So this Saturday, it was not all that different for me. Like, uh, I normally I'd go to jujitsu on Saturday, but my wife and I usually exercise in the morning. We spend a lot of time together, except for on this Saturday, I was, um, grilling outside and I had my dog out there. And then all of a sudden my dog is gone. And, uh, I'm talking with my sister on the phone. And so I'm like, Hey, I got, I got to go. I don't know where my dog is. This is crazy. And I go, uh, around the corner and I'm jarred awake because there is a guy there delivering my groceries and his son is like playing with my dog, letting it jump up on him and, and like petting her all over. And, uh, I, I was like, uh, really caught off guard. I, I, uh, I had to control my temper because I was like all of a sudden in this place where I'm like, he may be touching my dog and getting coronavirus on it. And what if that dog goes in and touches my wife? Oh God. And I like absolutely had no idea that I would have this instantaneous reaction because I hadn't come in contact with people. And it was really, it was pretty upsetting for me actually. So was this a flight or flight kind of reaction or was this just a a heart leaps through your throat kind of reaction or what what was it? It was actually, if I'm totally honest, it was anger. It was, it was immediate. It was a, uh, destroy this thing. That's doing that. Like, why are you touching my dog? Kind of, uh, what is this man doing? You know, setting things in my, in my yard. And, uh, it was very forward moving 
And, uh, and then I was like, it's just a kid. It's just, Hey, it's just a kid playing with your dog. It was weird. <laughs> so the, the mild mannered Vance has this, this primitive response. Wow. It had never, uh, it had never occurred to me before in that way. Not, not since I was, you know, getting in fights in high school or something like that. Like I hadn't had that much, you know, you can taste, uh, well, you've certainly had adrenaline in your mouth. When was the last oh, time yeah. you remember that yeah. taste being in your mouth? You know the one I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, I do. And probably it's been years ago, but it was probably uh, I was out harvesting. It was when I first came back to the farm after college and some ranching and some different things I'd done. And so I'm out on the combine and something screwed up on the right hand end of the header and for for whatever reason, I, I have no idea why I did what I did, but I, I got out of the combine, those old 8820s, 8820s had a side door that you could go out the right-hand side of the machine. So I got out that door, climbed down onto the feeder house. Those combines didn't have a um, automatic header disengage. Modern ones have a, a switch in the seat so that the header shuts off if you're out of the seat for safety. This one didn't have that. So for whatever reason, like, like an idiot, I, I walked down the feeder house and I climbed down this walk along the, the back of the header. It's a channel about oh, six or eight inches wide. And the headers, the reel is still turning and the, the auger is still turning. The cutter bar is still, everything's running on this machine. <laughs> at an idle. I'm so nervous and, and, right now. And I'm walking down this, this, <laughs> the back of the header that's about six inches wide over the top of all these moving parts. And any of the farmers that are listening to this podcast are just, their heart's going to be in their throat as they listen to this. But so I walked down this thing and the header's 30 feet long. So I've got this 15 foot balance bar that I'm essentially walking down and I get to the end and I look at whatever it is. And at that point I hop off the header to the, to the rear of it. So away from all the moving stuff and pull the weeds out of the sprocket and the chains oh, that, are, no, that are still moving no. with, with my hands. And it, it <laughs> wasn't until I got the weeds pulled out of there that I realized how completely stupid what I had just done was. And I, I I still to this day this is probably 2001 or 2002 when this happened and I, there, I still just I get a full body shudder sometimes when I think about how 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 gruesome my end would have been if I would have fallen into all that mechanical stuff. That was <laughs> I mean in. I'm holding I mean, my it, breath. It's like you know those experiences where you you know you're throwing something into a wood chipper or you're. You know, you're you're back in the car and, and you realize like, oh, my God, if I had gone one inch further and it was not anything other than luck that I didn't go just a little bit closer to that thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, well, and the silly, silly thing is, as I think back on this, um, the only reason I did that the way I did it was because. It was the, the dust and chaff blows off the machine, and I I was still in my clean clothes. It was early in the morning, and I didn't want to get out the door on the downwind side and have to walk through the dust to go around the the header to pull the, those weeds free. And it's easier to pull weeds free if everything's moving. Uh, so I mean, it, it's a, it was this convenience factor that ultimately could have resulted in this very gruesome uh, and messy farm death, <laughs> and nobody ever would have known why that was that I did what I did. But and you think you'd have died from it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because all, all these pieces are moving at probably 50 or 60 RPM. The entire function of the of a combine header is to pull things into it and then stuff it into the combine. 
so you've, you've got this moving mass of things that are all designed to grab things and, and <laughs> shove the crop into the feeder house. So I, I was, I was three feet away from, and, and, and one Darwin award away from falling into this mass of machinery and getting pushed through this combine that's, that's idling. That's a very powerful machine. I mean, <laughs> this whole thing just, <laughs> Don't try this at home, kids. Whoa, and uh, and you recently gave up farming, huh? You you like this this level of adventure, and then you actually just wrote a, a, a I saw it via Twitter, and then you posted the whole thing about giving up farming in this place that had so much electricity. Yeah, I that that that's been the the big event of the winter, really. Uh, February one, we decided to liquidate the farm. Uh, I'd been farming for 17 years, and uh, due to a, a series of economic and some management things and, and a, a variety of reasons, but we we realized it wasn't feasible for us to continue farming, and we we liquidated. So over the past few months, I've been selling equipment and kind of winding down the farm and uh, wrapping my head around the new job that I'm doing now. And it's so it's been a big change. But uh, the article I wrote today was. Uh, or I wrote it a couple of months ago and it just published today, but uh, I was, I was talking about how I got to where I am and uh, going through kind of some of the mental justifications for uh, uh, why I was okay with that. You know, farming is a really cultural, um, it, it's in your blood. And so if, if you're part of that farming culture, it's, it's, historically very difficult to walk away from a farm there's there's that connection to the farmstead there you know it's the place that grandpa homesteaded or great granddad homesteaded and it's the place where you know dad bought his first machine and you know there, there's all these uh family connections to a farm that are that are just really um they're really basic and you know it doesn't matter whether you're in iowa or montana or or georgia there's that same intrinsic feel um, goes with a, f a family farm. And so uh, I felt like it was important to talk about in this article uh, how I was justifying being able to walk away from this farm um, it, at a stage before bankruptcy and before retirement and, you know, before all the other reasons that typically people leave the farming game. And, um, it, it, you know, as, as it happened on Twitter, this, this article just blew up and I, it was, it, I mean, it's, it's probably blowing up right now. I bet your phone is just going nuts. Uh, but, uh, the, it's one thing to be a person that, that figures out, Hey, I'm going to do this before I have to do it before somebody pulls the trigger on me. And then it's another thing to, to, uh, sit down and write about it and tell everybody about it because you know, you could probably go a pretty long time where you tell people, hey, I got out of the farm and you're only going to have to answer as much as uh, as much as you want to. And most people aren't even going to ask because you'd be too embarrassing. So what prompted you to lay your soul bare there? To I mean, I, I think it was noble. I don't think there's anything to be embarrassed of. But I imagine if I was sitting on the other side of the pen, I might think that not think that. <laughs> To me, it was it was important. Um, I, I feel like I'm not going to be the only one that goes through this situation, and I'm not going to be the only one that experiences the emotions and the the, the mental aspect of, of arriving at these decisions, and then, uh, frankly, following that decision, uh, coming to peace with it, 
and and coming to grips with it. And so for me, I felt like it was important, um, partly in my leadership role with Montana Grain Growers Association, uh, you it's incumbent upon you to set the tone for the organization and to, to be a thought leader. And I felt like it was important for me going through this uh, kind of relatively unique event to, to have that open conversation and, and let people know it was okay to ask me about it, frankly, and that it was, that it was a, a situation that is, it's not unique and it's not um, uh, it's, it's okay to to go through that, and it's it's okay to to think very deeply about um, how you relate to your farm, how you relate to the family homestead, how you relate to that legacy that you have. In our case, uh, our our total family farm in Montana is a little over 100 years old. We homesteaded in 1911. Uh, my brother's still on that place, so there's you know I didn't give up that connection, but um, I, I still felt like I was given up to a to a degree. My part of me as as I put this farm to bed that my wife and I farm on. So I felt like it was important to talk about this and, and, and open that conversation because too many times when you see an event like this, um, people struggle with, um, uh, neighbors struggle with this, this feeling that they don't want to tear off a scab and so they don't ask the guy that that just went bankrupt or that that left the farm for whatever reason and so that poor guy sits there and he's a socially isolated then and you know his his friends don't want to talk about it because they're afraid they're going to rip the scab off and his neighbors that aren't maybe close friends but know him well um, they don't want to talk about it because they feel like it's this painful thing to talk about. And so this poor guy's isolated. Kind of like keeping his your own... clothes clean instead of going around and uh, getting dirty and getting the shaft cleaned out, right? Like if you keep your clothes clean, you got a good intention there. Right. And yep. these yeah, it, it's all good intentions. It's all great intentions. And, and yet this poor guy doesn't get the benefit of this very cathartic, um, conversation with friends and neighbors and, and be able to talk through it with anybody, but maybe his wife or his, if his dad's still alive, his dad, um, you know, and that's kind of the community culture. So I, I felt like it was important to break that, uh, that cycle and, and have this very open conversation, um, through this article that I wrote and, and, and get that out there in the open and, and let people know that it's okay to talk about these things and it's okay to ask a friend or a neighbor, hey, what, you know, how are you feeling, man? What's, what's, how do you really think about this and, and how are you justifying this in your mind? And, and on the other side of it, being able to tell that same farmer, hey, you know, it's all right. Um, your family came out here and they homesteaded, uh, you know, 100 years ago, but there was a reason they came out here to this homestead. And it was because wherever they were at before, in our case, Idaho, and before that, a few years, Missouri, um, things weren't good there. And so that those ancestors that came out here and built this homestead here left something behind that was, um, it wasn't as good as what they were coming to. And so that's how I've looked at this um, experience that I'm in now is I was in, I was in a situation that was not working and it didn't offer the strong possibility of working. And so I, I felt like it was important to um, move to, to make something that better. Decision. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like move something better. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, that, that is profound. And it actually describes, I remember I was dating my wife, uh, for not very long, a couple months. 
And she mm-hmm. told me about how in her family, the one of the family stories that they have is about how their family struggled in Czechoslovakia. So they took what few things they had. They had a, you know, a factory and um, they gave it all up. Um, and they came to another country because it was going to be better here. And then they started out as housekeepers and worked their way up. And that the family story really took a, the message, wherever you are, that's not what you're tied to. What you're tied to is your family. And your family is what Absolutely. makes you who you are. And wherever you go, that's, the, that, that's a good thing. And I thought, man, a woman that thinks like this, like the family unit is what you're moving forward. It's not trying to hold on to a legacy or a tradition that really opens up a lot of doors. Yeah, it certainly does. Yeah, and, and I'm in I'm in the middle of my family. You know, I've, I've my wife, um, my two boys, they're ten and thirteen. Uh, that's at the end of the day, that's the only thing that matters to me is is that we are are, are well as a unit. And um, you know, so if, if you look at the stresses associated with um, some very difficult thing like this. If, if I'm not at my hundred percent, it's hard for me to be a functioning part of that unit. And it's, it's so important, um, as the family leader to be, um, well, medically, mentally, um, morally, holistically, you know, there's all these things that enter into that. And so that, that was, um, that, that was part of this. I, I said, you know, is this worth getting up every morning and, and being stressed out about whether this is going to work. And so it was, it was actually a really a relief to make this decision um, to walk away from the farm and, and, and do it before things went really South and do it in a time where I could still pay off every one of my vendors and I could still walk down main street and look everybody in the eye because I hadn't gone bankrupt and left them with, um, you know, less than what I owed them. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's an important thing for me within how I do business and, and how I interact with the community. Well, and by, by having integrity, it's what help you come to the right decision about what moving forward is, right? If it, that, that's, I think a lot of times people think about integrity as like having to choose something you don't want to do, but by having integrity, by having the things in place that tell you, hey, these are the parameters you don't want to step outside of. That's what allows you to lead the life that you that that no, that you get to hold your head up, right? Like, and what's more important than that? Oh, it's it's totally liberating if if you have that that's been so ingrained into your your very being. If, if you live according to that code, then it's it's totally liberating, and you know it's it's actually harder on you to go against that code and and um kick against the pricks is is one way of putting it well you know you are um a guy that i think takes life really really seriously and i I don't mean that in a negative way you're you're able to laugh and have fun and make jokes and but i mean like you're here to play the best game that you can where did you pick this up like where 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 did you get the integrity and the the lessons because a lot of the things that you do are counterintuitive or at least they're counter impulsive. It, it was just the way I was raised. Um, you know, I, and not just by mom and dad, but by my grandparents lived the same sort of integrity. Um, and so I, 
from from a very early age, this was all I knew. This was, you know, dad was my role model, grandpa was my role model. And as I watched those two um, do business and interact with their families and interact with their neighbors and and be part of the community and, and, you know, it just, as I watched them look, that was the only thing I ever saw was to do things the right way um, to to make sure that whenever you did a deal, the the other guy got the bigger half of the deal and, um, you know, go that second mile. Um, and it was just that was the way I was raised. So it's it's just part of my being. And I, I don't know any other way to to live. Um, so, I, I you know, can I point to a single thing? That's those are the things that I. I grew up with and watched and saw, and I, I saw the results of those, and I saw how the community um, uh, benefited from that sort of uh, positive interaction. And uh, you know, I, it, to use just a little anecdote, Dad taught us that if you're ever driving somewhere and somebody's parked alongside the road, you stop to see if they need help. And that was that was just one of those lessons that was just ingrained from the time I can remember ever driving anywhere and you know whether it was 20 below and the snow was going um or it was summertime dad always stopped for somebody that was stranded whether they were you know stopping to change a diaper on a kid or whether they were stopping to change a tire um it was it was something dad stopped to to see what the problem was and so those were the kind of lessons that i grew up with was that always you've always got time for the other guy and uh when you were a kid and you're you know, living, were you living in Montana clearly then? Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. Were you, were you dreaming of being a cowboy or a, or a farmer or what what were you imagining you were going to be when you grew up? Oh, I was a typical kid. I was going to be a half a dozen different things. I was going to be a marshal and I was going to be a cowboy and a farmer. And, um, uh, probably I think in, in my early grade school days, uh, I was going to be a backhoe digger and that was going to be my thing was, was run this construction company. And, uh, so, you know, I, I had all these different things that I was going to do. And, and in high school, I, I took the ASVAB test and it said I'd be a really good cop or else a fighter pilot. And I thought, yeah, that'd be kind of cool to do. Um, and as it happens, I, I'm one of those, but not the other. Um, so I, uh, you know, life has these strange turns, but I, uh, I, I grew up on a farm. And so I, I think probably the, baseline was that I was always going to be a farmer and uh, of the, the there was myself and two brothers and two sisters uh, out of five of us four of us are farming all within 30 miles of the home place so you know that that is very definitely part of the family and uh, I'm I'm trying to find like a clever way to get you to tell some cop stories because it, your stories like I would have expected Montana farm rancher. The only thing, um, like if you're a sheriff, you're going out on the Indian reservation and having problems there, but that, but that's cause that's all I see on TV, but you're actually dealing with real police problems. Sure. I, I'm a reserve deputy. I've been doing that for about 10 years and, um, it, it's got, it's, it's got its moments, you know, certainly there's, uh, anecdotes that come up. Um, I, I, let's see, what's a good one to, to tell you here tonight. Um, I, you know, I, my, so 2009 was when I went through the training and I started the patrolling with 16 hours a month was your minimum requirement for the reserve side. Um, so I'd go in and work a shift and, 
you never knew what was going to go on. And um, so I, I went in one night and I was just going to work like four hours. And so I'd been on for about a half hour. I jump in with my, the guy I was going to ride with that night and we're hanging out, figuring out what we were going to do. And I'm town's dead. There's nothing going on. And all of a sudden we're, we're sitting in dispatch and all of a sudden phone rings off the hook. The 911 call comes in and it's 911 has a, a separate ringtone in dispatch from the landline. And so, you know, things are, are getting frisky. And so not only does line one, one ring, but the landline rings. And so dispatch grabs one, I grab the landline and we, we get this call out in the country. And in the meantime, the line one, one call hangs up. And the long story short is this ended up being a, a domestic um, violence case. That was the first major felony that I ended up working. And so Sunquist and I jump in the Durango and we go driving out there and uh, it's on the county line. And so Glacier County is also responding to this thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm a rookie still. I've, I've only been on the job for like two months, three months, maybe. And I, I my first inclination that this was going to be a little friskier than usual was that Sunquist pulls his phone out of his shirt pocket and calls his wife and says, hey, baby, I love you. I'm going on a call and this thing might get bad. So I just want to let you know I'm uh, thinking about you. And then he hangs up and punches the throttle and away we go. And <laughs> so so we're, we're trying to figure out what we got going on with this thing as we're driving out to this thing at about 70 miles an hour. And we would go faster, but those Durangos were just death traps and they were really unstable at speed. The wind was blowing like 15, 20 miles an hour. And see, you just can't go fast, but we were making all the speed we could. And we, we get about halfway there and he said, did you bring your rifle? And I yeah, I brought my rifle. How about your helmet? I said, oh, yeah, I've got that too. It's in the trunk. You're, you might need that on this call. So, I mean, th th we're setting the stage for this thing that's that's getting kind of wild. And so we, we roll up on this place. Glacier County had beat us to the scene by about, oh, maybe 45 seconds. So they already had the guy in cuffs when we got there. Um, but uh, uh, as it happens, this, this was kind of a major dis domestic. This guy had... His wife was leaving him, and she moved in with some other guy, and um, he found out where she was at, and he spent the whole day drinking in the bar, getting his courage up, and decided to go get her and told everybody that he was going to go. And so he goes out there, and meanwhile, the, the boyfriend, the new guy, finds out that he's going to um, – the the husband is going to go out there. So he, he calls 911 and says, Hey, I, I'm, I heard that this guy is going out to pick up my girlfriend and he's kind of violent. And so I'm going to go out there. And this is all on, on 911 tapes. And he, so he gets out there and he pulls over the hill and he's, he says, okay, I, I see the guy's pickup. He's there. I'm, I'm driving in the yard and I have a pistol with me. Is it okay if I shoot this guy, if I need to? And dispatch says, don't do that. Don't shoot him. And so in the meantime, this husband sees this guy coming in and he goes out, jumps in his pickup and he T-bones this car, which is ironically is an ex-cop car. And so he T-bones this thing at about 40 miles an hour. And you hear it on the 911 tape later. And then you hear, and the guy backs up and hits him again. And hits him kind of off corner, throws the car out of the way. And you hear all, you hear both impacts on 911 tape. And the guy says, he just hit me with his pickup. Can I shoot him? Dispatch says, no, officers are coming. Don't shoot him. And so this guy has his pistol with him. Meanwhile, 
the bad guy gets out of his pickup, comes around, and he can't get in the driver's door because he's just collapsed that with the pumper of his pickup. So he reaches in the passenger door and pulls this poor boyfriend out over the passenger seat and says, do not point your pistol at me. And the guy points his pistol at him. And so the bad guy takes the pistol away from him and pistol whips this guy. I mean, just beats him to a halt. <laughs> and, and then... He, he hits him so hard with the pistol that he he loses part of his ear. And so we roll up onto this scene. This this guy's sitting on the porch, just a bloody mess. His face looks like hamburger. His ears hanging. I mean, this guy looks like a bear attack. But he didn't think this we, was going to happen when he started hooking up with that chick. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so there's there's glass all over the, the, the bad guy kicked in the front door. And I mean, it, it was a bad scene. And so we go in we kind of figure out what we've got going on and i'm i'm back at the patrol car we've got the bad guy in cuffs he's sitting up in the cage and i'm inventorying the the pistol that was the kind of the centerpiece to this quite a bit of this activity and it okay and i'm saying this out loud to this other deputy okay we've got this 1911 it's uh, got a loaded magazine in it and uh safety's on um oh and there's there's a, a round in the chamber and the bad guy hears this up in the cage, and he says, there, I was not loaded. I pointed it at him and made, pulled the trigger, and it wouldn't go off. It wasn't loaded. So, so we've got an excited <laughs> utterance. <laughs> so, uh, so we've got this. I mean, now we, we went from this uh, major assault to attempted homicide. <laughs> and, you know, th- <laughs> so uh, a little cop story for you. <laughs> Whoa. That is uh, intense. And as you were driving up there and you're imagining the rifle, this is like, are you nervous? Are you scared? Are you excited? Or like, what what's going on in your head as somebody tells you to prepare for war? So I'm fresh off my training on the reserve side. And so your, your training is as you roll into something, you're, you start going down through the checklist of what you're going to do and, and where you're going to move, what you're, what you're going to look for, what are the, what are the elements of the crime, uh, what are the threats, what are the dangers. And so as we're rolling into this, um, I'm, I'm, I'm on the radio with dispatch trying to figure out what the yard looks like, where the house is, uh, kind of what we're going to roll into. And so, so for me, it was just a checklist of, okay, we're going to come in from the north. As, as we see this, it's a, it's a farmyard. So as we're driving down into it, we can see, Okay, there's there's two buildings off to the east side. There's this house. Uh, there's a couple of vehicles parked in the middle of the yard that are very close together. Um, so where's the bad guy in this? Um, we knew that there was a by this time we knew that there was a gun involved, um, and so we're trying to figure out um, kind of what we um, and we're making a, the the other deputy and I are making a tactical plan. You know, where are we gonna where are we gonna approach? Where are we gonna park? How are we gonna move into this house? So that's so it's really just a um, a, a, a checklist of, of how you're going to approach this thing. And so I, I didn't really have time to think about should I be scared, should I um, be worried. Uh, I, I I checked my rifle to make sure it was loaded. And other other than that, um, 
uh, that, that was kind of what you're setting into. Man, that kind of training uh, would be very valuable to anybody. It wouldn't just be valuable to a police officer. Just being able to analyze a system like that, it, it reminds me of learning logic in philosophy where you learn, you know, this is how you define a word. This is how you construct an argument. This is how you make logical leaps from one step to the next. I mean, that sounds like you're doing logic, but in a physical way. Oh, absolutely. It, it's a very um, flowchart sort of a approach that you take to a problem. Do, do you see this? Okay, we see this. Okay, if, if you see this, then how do you respond to that? One of the things that we um, talked about a lot in training, I still talk about as I train new deputies now, is this OODA loop. So observe, orient, decide, act. It's a um, it's a principle that was developed by Colonel John uh, Colonel Boyd back in the 50s or 60s in the Air Force, and it was a way to orient yourself to problems and to a way to think about how to um, position yourself within the problem. So you you observe it, uh, what the thing is, you orient yourself, what this means to me, you decide what you're going to do about it, and then you act. And so the OODA loop, and it, it's a it's a continuing loop that that functions. Um, and, uh, it, it's, it's really a fundamental way to work through things. But the interesting thing about it is if you observe some new thing partway through the cycle of this loop, you start over your, your brain resets. And so if there's some new stimulus, uh, you're, and you're, you're somewhere between decide and act, your brain has to reobserve, reorient, and then come up with a new decision about how to respond to that. So if you, we, we, within the law enforcement world, we talk about getting inside somebody's OODA loop, and that's simply being able to, to process what we're doing faster than they can and, and stay ahead of them in, in, the, in the fight or in the field interview or whatever it is we're doing. And it applies to all, you know, there, you can use that across a number of different things in life. I read that book, but I did not take that away from it. I mean, I loved the hotshot guy who's just not going to take it from anybody and he's going to do his thing even when they tell him he can't. And it, But the actual most important part, I just realized I had walked past because that you're, what you're explaining is exactly what that book talks about. Yeah, it, it, it's if, if you start to think about it, you see yourself doing it in all kinds of different things in life. It, you know, you're going down the street and you, you realize, hey, I just saw this and I'm going to do this about it. And, okay, now I'm going to do that. And it's, it's, it's foundational to really how the human brain works. So now we're living in coronavirus world uh, or post-coronavirus world. Would you say, I, I don't know if you've heard me describe this, but I think there are the traditionalists, the people that believe that coronavirus is going to go uh when we get done with this pretty much things will go back to normal and then there's the post coronalists which are uh they could be you know really dark glassed uh like like um thinking that things are all going to go negative and they're not going to be good and it's really terrible i'm sure you could go positive in some way but so which one are you where where do you fall on this and how could i tighten up those definitions I think that there's three camps, um, and I, where I fall in it would be that we'll never go back to where we were. Uh, certainly, this is this is a, a new um, paradigm that we're in. I mean, it's, it's kind of like being pre-World War II, post-World War II. The, the world fundamentally changed. Um, 
is that going to be good or bad? I don't know. Uh, we we already see companies uh, realigning themselves with this reality and making, uh, as I see it, some pretty big changes to how they do business. Um, those changes are going to reverberate through our economy. Um, they're going to reverberate through our politics. Um, we see people making some really fundamental um, changes with how they interact with neighbors in the neighborhoods. Uh, those things are going to reverberate through culture and through, uh, I, I think, our society in a number of ways. Are they going to be good or bad? I, uh, I, it scares me to see how people culturally are handling this, the, some of the social shaming and um, some of the things like that, particularly in the, the higher density populations. That spooks me a lot. Um, what do you mean the social shaming? On the business shaming? side. Tell me about that. What do you mean? So, particularly on social media, but also in, in, in meat space, um, you see this um, really binary attitude towards people that are cavalier about coronavirus, or um, it seems to be kind of a one-way thing. The people that don't take it seriously are looked at as um, kind of this threat by people who do take it very seriously and you know the, the, at the extremes of it you hear you hear people say things like uh, how dare you go out in public without a mask on or how dare you go out in public at all because um you know you could be carrying this virus and it could be you could be spreading it and and you, you're you you are going to be the cause of this virus you're gonna murder somebody by going out and so it's, it's this really um uh uh, it feels extreme attitude towards people who are defying this social norm. And um, it's that's fundamentally at odds with the way our country has been for the last, um, at least all, all through my life. People have always been kind of live and let live. You know, if, if I feel like I should do something, I do it. And if somebody else feels like they should do it a different way, that's uh, – kind of just the way it is and you know which i think a lot of that's your montana view i i think that we actually maybe are in the perfect storm i'm in total agreement with you about the way that people are treating others and how they're reacting to them but we have been gearing society up for online mobs for the last five years for sure maybe even the last 10 years and and it's this idea that um, everyone you see can be distilled down to uh, either right or wrong, good or bad. And it, and you want to be the first one to point out that somebody that we used to think was good is bad. And, uh, and, and so that's what allows mobs to form and really get going is that they can do it on social media trying to earn social credit, not realizing there are real people's lives in, in the balance here. It's no longer you know, accusing somebody of being racist, this is actually coming down to jailing them for, for doing something bad. Mm -hmm. I, I would agree with that. And I would say, I, I would agree that the base of it is social media. We've certainly seen the way people interact with each other um, is fundamentally different on social media than it is, uh, you know, face to face out on the street. You, we, we talk about online personality versus a real personality and how some people are so very different in their online um, life than the way they are when you actually meet them and shake hands. And uh, I, 
I wish I knew how to how to address that because it's people should fundamentally be the same person whether they're behind a screen or or shaking your hand but it's I, I don't see that you know it, it was interesting the other day um, a guy that I talked to just in text message wrote me and said hey who's this internet tough guy and he was talking about this guy that had been replying to me and him and I was like oh I interviewed him on the podcast and uh he was like what that was him and and you realize like i'm not sure if people know that they sound like an internet tough guy or the way that they're they try and translate the voice inside of their head into you know digital speech or if they actually do turn into that because there are people out there i think they're they're just not good at at converting their emotions into written word that can be seen by everybody. But then I think there are also some internet tough guys. So it's hard to figure out which are which. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I always get a kick out of meeting people that I've known online for years and, and seeing what the real person is. I've, um, I, I don't view myself as being a real digital person, but I've, one of my networks extends back to 2004 that I joined and, a, a lot of those guys I have yet to meet, and a few of them I've met over the last uh, few years. And in fact, I I was at a, as part of a group last year. I, I met about twenty of these guys, and I, I've interacted with them since two thousand four. And um, it's they're, they're all pretty cool guys. Um, and you know, there there isn't really a an internet tough guy mob in that particular network that I'm in. But um, it was really interesting to put a face to them and put a name to them. And and put a name, a real name to a a call sign uh, that they'd been using for years, and 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 then interact with these guys over the course of a few days. We went hog hunting, and um, it, it was really a great experience. But it was it was just really interesting to see um, how, how a call sign uh, matched up with the reality of that person. That's interesting to call it a call sign because it really is. And I mean, I had that I've had that same experience. Um, with Jared McDaniel and Dwayne Faber. And it's funny because you and I have never met in person, but I, I I find it hard to believe that. We, well, I guess we have met in person. You were at a talk um, that I was giving or you were, you came to Monsanto when I was working there. But yep. I don't I don't remember that. I'm crushed, Vance. I thought I was a more memorable personality than that. Yeah, I think you purposefully are kind <laughs> of a wallflower. You're one of those guys that... Uh, in in our whale pod, in our group of people that are sharing information all over the all over the world, you're the guy that shows up and is like, "Oh, if you need to know how to store milk for you know five days, or uh, this is the type of armor you should have if you're worried about getting caught in a gunfight." And so it's it's uh, every time I talk with you, I realize this is there is a side to this guy that I didn't even know before. You're like a many, many sided, uh, person. Uh, I've had people accuse me of being a Renaissance man, and I don't know if that's entirely correct, but I, 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 I just am fascinated by many different things. And it's, um, I, I have tried to live life by the model of taking life by the horns. And when adventures offer themselves, you take them. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, one thing leads to another and I, I can't say I've planned a great deal of my life, but it's, um, it's, I've enjoyed every minute of it. And it's, it's, it's fun to, to think back on some of the places I've been and some of the people I've met and, 
and probably the people that matter is, is the, the bigger part of most of these stories. Yeah, I mean, that's the people are everything for me. I, I, I've always um, tried to say this, like, I, I don't actually like traveling just to see scenery. Like if we're going just to see a mountain, then I want to go with somebody because I want that that experience of us going there together. And uh, when I travel, I want to meet the people. I don't even care if they're the janitor. Like those are the things that make the thing the most interesting to me. And I find that 100% true with you. You are that way. It's just so much more interesting to to interact with the people that are the the day-to-day reality of the place when i was up in alaska we met this old cat named jack ross and he'd been a forest service employee up there for i think he had 35 or eight years in forest service um he he had come from the outside and and moved up there and spent all his time in alaska i mean just a super interesting guy to download and so this guy's in his probably mid-70s at this point. He lives four miles down a lake from this native village that we're at that is 150 air miles from Anchorage. There's no roads to this place. And so you're dealing with a, the people whose reality is totally different than than anything in lower 48. Their, their food all comes in on an airplane. Um, their, any big things come in on, a, on an airplane that's big enough to land on the ice of the lake that's outside the village. I mean, it's just, just this totally different reality. So you just have to talk to these people to find out what that's like. And so this guy, he, we're, we're talking to him, and he, he jumped in his little skiff to come up the lake to get his mail. He's got a four-mile trip in a boat to get his mail every three days. Yeah, and so we're talking to this guy, and he says, yeah, a bear got into the house here the other day, and he, he, he tore up our freezer. So I've got a freezer coming in on the charter plane, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and I mean, his reality was just so different than, than my Montana reality. And so we're talking to him and he's, he's yeah, he said, my, my wife made me, he said, I had too many airplanes and my wife said I had to sell some. So, so I sold one in Anchorage the other day and he says, the guy paid cash for it. It was $80,000 and he paid cash in hundred dollar bills. He said, that's seven inches of money if you stack it up and hold a ruler next to it. And <laughs> I mean, the, 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 that relating to money by using a ruler. To, <laughs> I mean, where do you get stories like that outside of just talking to somebody? And, and so this guy goes on, he says, yeah, this, this boat that I'm running today, he said, I had all that money and she said, I didn't have to bring all of it back. So I stopped at the boat shop and I spent an inch and a half of it on this skiff that I'm driving today. <laughs> so he's got this 20 foot aluminum skiff that he spent an inch and a half of money on. <laughs> I, 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 how do you get stories like that without just loving to talk to people that you're, that you're in their area? I mean, it's, it's great. Are you worried about uh, having to measure our money in inches? Uh, I am. I'm more worried that we might have to measure it with wheelbarrows or, or dump trucks. Um, I, as we look at this unprecedented federal spending, that's that's clearly all deficit spending. I, uh, you know, our, our budget wasn't in great shape before this, and now we take essentially a year's worth of tax revenue and and blow it all in the course of a week's time. Um, that's really worrying to me. I, uh, and I, I don't see Congress losing their appetite for doing that kind of reckless spending. Um, I recognize that we're in this totally uncharted water as we shut down 30 to 60% of the nation's economy. Uh, but, uh, boy, I don't know if this is the right way to, to handle that particular problem. 
it's it's certainly a uh, running the printing presses like we are. It's <laughs> it it feels a lot like uh, an African country in some ways, where it's just we turn on the faucet and print money until it's becomes worth less than the paper is written on. You know, it, well, first of all, we're printing so much money that we aren't even actually printing the money. It's just ones and zeros on computer screens, right? It's it's not right. actually I, printed. But the other thought about this with um, the inflation, it it would seem to me that people that are really itching to go back to work, um, and I am a person that wants to see the economy moving again, and I don't like having laws be the thing that, that are instituting on people – but I do think that you have to consider that the people in the White House have taken economics. They they do mm-hmm. understand that if you print money that it does cause inflation. I just don't think they care. And I think that it should show you that they are very, very concerned about this disease. And probably more concerned than the theater show you're seeing on the when Trump gets up there and he argues with with reporters or Fauci that that to me all seems like an opera the people that are really playing in this game they are the ones that turned on the printing press of the money and uh I think that's something to watch I I would agree I my time in DC um representing the uranium industry I've um I've I've seen DC operate at at the at the functional level rather than at the uh, news bite level or the sound bite level and um, you know for for as much flack as we like to give congress and the executive branch and and you know frankly dc in general uh, there's uh, um, the people that are back there largely are doing the best that they can um for the benefit of the country and uh, you know, certainly there's philosophical and and political differences. You know, some of them are in fact profound. But at the end of the day, uh, if you strip away the the sound bites and the the uh, the tiddlywink kind of part of it, uh, you know, they're, they're they're working hard. They're trying to do the right thing, um, and uh, it, that's as as discomforting or as discomfortable as I am with where we're at, um, there, there is that comfort that I've, I've seen how it works on the ground level and, and how it, um, I how think there is that care I, for the country I, and how there's, I think that this has been, uh, a, a tool that has done served you very, very well, Lyle, for a very long time, which is you're functioning within the system that's there. And if you sit there and just complain and say, those guys are all crooks and losers and you can't get anything done, then you'd have to just give up. So I think that that is a noble thing. But I want to push back and say that I think that the system that we have built is going to show whether or not it's resilient. And I think that the people that we have in a lot of these areas are they're just theater actors and they're overseeing way, way, way more than any human being really could. And we're centralizing a lot of power in the federal government. And I think that there's probably a time for some change up on who controls what and how much control is in the central national government. And it may not happen quick, but um, the system that's there seemed like it was ill prepared for the problem that we have right now. Would you agree? I, I would. Uh, 
and I, I would I would frame it in this way: um, you've got Congress made up of several hundred people that are trying to take responsibility for a country of 330 million that spreads from uh, between two oceans and across five or six time zones. Uh, there's a lot going on in this country, and I, I, I just. I just don't know how several hundred people can have that down in the weeds um, approach it takes to to really deal with local problems. And you know, as you look at the the function of our government, but the separation between federal powers and state powers, we're, we're this is a fascinating time because we're seeing those interplays right now as governors are taking the lead in in certain aspects of the response and and are doing things that are. Um, you know, in some ways, even counter to what the federal response is, and yet it fits their local reality, uh, although it may not fit the state that's three states away's reality. And you know, so I, I think we're going to see that grassroots uh, or or states' rights versus federal interaction. I think that's going to play into this in in probably an increasing way. Um, what does that look like? I don't know, but it's it's sure wild when you have the governor of California coming out and saying, you know, this the federal response doesn't fit us, and we're we are now a nation state. Um, that's, I saw that's that a level too. Of I, I I saw that and was really worked up about that. And then upon a deeper look, it sounds like he is slipping that in, and I don't think he's doing it by accident. But he is he was describing that that they are their economy is the size of a nation state. And everybody already knows that. I, I mean, I think it's probably a wink and a nudge, uh, but I don't mm -hmm. think it's good for uh, because when I originally saw that quote that where Gavin Newsom said we're a nation state, I thought he was basically declaring independence, and I was like, oh god, oh, what, what, oh this is real bad, but it wasn't that bad. It's certainly, um, you know, to use the old concept of pacing and leading, it's certainly a. A powerful position to stake, <laughs> or a, a significant position to stake out. Um, yeah, I, I, this whole thing is just a, a fascinating. Uh, it's almost a, a Lewis Carroll through the looking glass sort of a experience. You know, I think that people have uh, been looking at the oh, in two weeks it's going to be really bad. Hey, this week is going to be really bad. I think that one of the things that people are struggling to deal with is the time horizon and the fact that you don't know a time horizon or nobody's stood up to just be like hey we're gonna we're gonna put it up on this time horizon uh, i think that's what's making people antsy and that antsiness is going to turn into political action as either people feel like they have to be free and let out of their houses or they have to force somebody else to stop other people from leaving theirs and that's two pretty significant and diametrical um, positions. <laughs> Where, where's the middle ground in that? Nobody that's come on my show has much of a middle ground, right? And if you begin the middle ground conversation, um, there are people that'll come out and say, "Oh, well, you, you know, you're you don't care if there are bodies in the street, just as long as you can get money." And that's it, it's like the most ridiculous shut down every aspect of conversation as possible, but it happens every single time anybody comes anywhere near the we should lift the quarantine thing. Yeah. I, I, I've seen that there's a Venn diagram running around right now that's, um, are you concerned about the economy? Are you concerned about coronavirus? And are you concerned about the country, the direction the country's going as its response? And, you know, I, 
I, I guess I personally sit right in the middle of that Venn diagram. There's there's certainly big concerns in all three of those areas, and I I I think it's important to to be kind of take a kind of a centrist approach to that rather than sit way outside on the edge of one of those circles that's um you know one of those three groups or, or and it's probably there's probably more than three groups in that conversation but it's uh, you know the, the way you reach uh, consensus um, about a course of action is not to stake out the salt and pepper or the oil and water position that's that's just exactly separate from whatever the the opposing position is it's you need to have that conversation that that kind of takes a multitude of viewpoints and perspectives into account and and ultimately benefits the the broadest group of people. I mean, I absolutely 100% do not know what's going on and I have spoken with 30 people for nearly an hour uh, that have their own expertise at what's going on and nobody has the answers and every time I get done with a conversation I'm like, yeah, I guess Things are getting better. Yeah, it looks like we should probably let, let everybody out of quarantine and go. And then the next conversation, I'm like, oh, man, it is the Black Plague and things are bad. And I'm not that hyperbolic of a person generally. I I just mm-hmm. – I, I, anybody that feels like they know what's going on, I want to talk to that person because I, I don't know what's going on. Well, and I think that ties back to what I'm talking about, this consensus thing. You know, there's there's all, all of these viewpoints that are – some of them come from a very scientific perspective. Some of them come from a very emotional perspective. Some of them come from a very uh, pragmatic perspective or a economical perspective or, you know, there's, there's all these different competing um, viewpoints on, on how to how to approach that. And, and uh, you know, ultimately there's middle ground somewhere and – you know what does that look like? Do we do we quarantine just the the crowd that's at most at risk? Um, if you take my county's numbers, that's not a winning strategy. I was looking at some numbers this week, and uh, I, I think we've got at least two people in every decade uh, age bracket that have coronavirus at this point. Um, uh, is that a concern? Uh, so far, a number of those people are. Uh, have either recovered or they're getting worse with the disease. So, you know, I, where where is that balance? The, the fatalities that we've had in this county have been in the the eighty year old demographic. Um, so, you know, maybe that winning strategy is to to look at that sixty or seventy plus crowd and say, yes, we need to be very careful with these. And um, if if you have some kind of immune deficiency, uh, yes, probably you should quarantine or or limit your exposure, and, and the rest of the world can uh, continue to practice these um, social distancing and hand washing. But they don't need to be barricaded in their homes, and they don't need to have the restaurants all shut down, and the you know all of these different elements that we're seeing that's that's wreaking such havoc on the economy. And I, you know, maybe that's that middle ground that that eventually we're going to arrive at i mean you're going to have to have some ideas put forward before the solutions are brought forward because if you don't know where the line is on what makes it possible for people to go out then then when somebody presents you with the solution you don't really know is that helping me get over the line that we all agreed to was where we wanted to get to and uh 
That's that's one of the things that I've observed is very few people are willing to put forward. So I hear people thinking in two week time frames and I ask them intentionally, you know, what do you think the world looks like in two weeks? But I also notice that people are told by the White House, hey, it's going to be two more weeks or, hey, when we're out of May, everything's going to be fine. And the the scale of which the change is going to happen to the world is so much bigger than two weeks. The two weeks barely gives you a pinhole in, into what's going on. Yeah, we're, we're looking through a keyhole into a, a mansion kind of as a, as a perspective on this problem. And if, if anybody says on June 15th, there won't be any coronavirus in the U.S., or on July fifteenth, the world won't have coronavirus. I mean, it's it's that's just foolish. It's it's that's crazy talk. Because if you, if you understand bio, bio, virology at at even a middle school level, we know that this thing isn't going away. It's it's not going to be. Um, it, it won't be like polio where we can eliminate it in three months. I read this they're, tonight they're, they're, with I didn't read the actual paper, but it was from a guy who posted on Twitter. They said there are eight different strains of coronavirus that that i i don't know that they are necessarily uh doing anything different to people's bodies but that's how much it's changed which means like Mm -hmm. we know nothing at all about it because people could be impacted by this differently because it could be a different disease oh absolutely and each of those eight strains if if that's where we're at today um you know, we apply Darwin's theory to this, the survival of the fittest. There's going to be some of those will emerge as stronger strains. Some of those will weaken. Uh, some of those strains are certainly going to attack different uh, population segments at, at greater or lesser rates. Um, you know, this this is this is kind of a weird bug in that it's it's being so um, readily adaptable to so many different um coping strategies and things this is uh, you know as, as a farmer i look at the, the the weed pressure that we have dealt with over the years and you know weeds evolve slowly over time uh, we've seen some herbicide resistance in the last oh 10 or 15 years uh, and that, that's the response of those weeds to a particular selective herbicide and uh, so now we're seeing this virus that's responding in um, on, you know, maybe not a daily basis, but it's responding over the course of a couple months. It has morphed into these eight different versions. That's pretty spooky when you, when you view it from this farm perspective of a weed evolving or a weed species evolving over 10 or 15 years compared to this virus evolving over the course of just a few months. That's, that's wild. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I have no idea whether it's just a little bit worse than the flu or if it's the same as Spencer Wells came on my podcast this morning and said that he thought it was the only thing comparable to it is the Black Plague. Do you know anything about the Black Plague? I mean, I know that it sounds bad, but I don't know anything at all about it. The, the closest I come to the Black Plague is watching Monty Python um, segments where the you know they bring out the dead, bring out the dead, and then <laughs> they conk that guy with a hammer. To, <laughs> that, that's as close as I come, except for knowing that it it well, you know obviously decimate. Well, didn't didn't decimate Europe. It wiped Europe in half or more. I, I don't I, I don't even know the, the raw numbers of of what it did, but it was it was huge. And I I was reading some. Uh, something here the other day about um, 
some explorers in the early 1800s out on the Pacific coast, so the Seattle area, coming across tribes of Indians that were, there was just dead Indians or, or dead natives in the village, and they didn't know what happened, but there was just bodies everywhere. And so at some point in that early 1800s, there were some kind of virus that went through those Pacific Coast tribes, uh, which must have acted something like the Black Plague, or it must have been something similar. But it wiped those tribes out. They don't exist to this day. And it makes me wonder if some of those were some of the things that happened down in the desert southwest in the, you know, the cliff dwellings and things down in the Anasazi Park and Bandelier and places like that. Oh, wow. I had never really thought about disease. You know, disease was never all that real to me uh, until this. You know, of, of any of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you, you know, I took a bioterrorism class and I, I, I remember studying this stuff. But even when Ebola became real, I was never like, oh, this could happen to me. I always thought like, this is just something that's out there and you just hope that you're you know, just like you hope you don't run into a deer, but you still got to drive your car. But now right. that's everybody hit a deer. <laughs> right. Well, it, to, to use a sample, an example that most people are at least um, passingly aware of, the, the smallpox infestation that went through the Native American tribes um, during the settling of the West. I mean, that was that was a virus and it was. You know, there, there's some background to there that I won't get into, but uh, it, that wiped out a large number of Western tribes. It, it, I mean, it, it, there was hundreds of thousands that that died as a result of that uh, particular strain going through the the West. Did we have a theory of germs at that point? Did we understand that disease spread human to human contact, that kind of thing? I. Th- I think there must have been a little bit. There's certainly some history that indicates that the smallpox was um, was understood well enough that it was intentionally spread through those tribes as a um, as a as a way to conquer them, uh, which is you know from, from our 21st century is really um, uh, I don't know if there's strong enough words to describe what that is from our perspective today, but that was the reality of that that time. Wow. I mean, that's actual. I remember learning that the that supposedly the Japanese have done this to the Chinese, tried to tried to do uh, biological warfare by spreading. um, I think they spread lice into the into China with certain diseases on it. And I think about that. Man, that is an insidious, terrible way of doing war. And I I don't know that shooting somebody is any more honorable when you're fighting in that on that level. But man, that's bad. Yeah, it certainly puts the the experience of World War One into a new context. I mean, it's it, as as horrible as chemical warfare was all through World War One. Um, using germ warfare um, is, to me, an order of magnitude worse even than that. And what do you think? Makes Partly it that because uh, there's probably several things, but I mean, there the, the, you could. You can talk about the moral aspect of it and the, the that that side of it quite a bit, but um, to me, the the non-selective nature of germ warfare is a pretty fearsome specter because it goes everywhere. 
uh, you know, the chemical warfare in World War One. The the only areas that were affected were the areas where the chemical was released. It dispersed over a relatively small area of the battlefield, and it certainly affected civilians. And it, it to this day, there's places that are no-go zones because there was so much chemical that was used on some of those battlefields. But um, the compare that to releasing a smallpox uh, virus in a tribe of people and wiping out um, not only the Native Americans or the First Peoples, but but also um, anybody else that came in contact with it that was slightly immunocompromised. I mean, it's non-selective. It goes everywhere. It goes wherever it wants. And that, to me, is um, just uh, it, it, the, the lack of control of that is um yeah it's unleashing pandora's box or something i mean it truly is saying i want to win and i don't care what the costs are right like the because there's no way for me to calculate yeah. the cost i can't know it so yeah. i'm willing to pay whatever price i release onto this that's that's uh shit man that's dark <laughs> that's dark it is, yeah, and I think that's what's so spooky about it. And you know, this this coronavirus, there's there's all these theories about what the Chinese knew and when they knew it, and you know where it originated and how it how it did what it's doing. But um, at the end of the day, that all doesn't matter because this disease is so non-selective. It's it's you know, there's no way that somebody can can hit the off switch on it, and. At least at this point, we don't have a vaccine. We don't have a, a, a reliable antibody test, and we don't have these other other ways that we can just say, okay, that what once this particular strategic objective is achieved, we can shut this disease off and remove that threat from the thing. So, I mean, to me, that takes some of the fire out of the conspiracy theories because it is so non-selective. Uh, why would you release something that was? that affected your own population just as dramatically as it does the entire global population. It, it's just, it's inconceivable. Yeah. And they, they've gone to some pretty significant links to try and, uh, to try and stop it. So Lyle, I'll, I'll ask you the question I've been asking everybody. It is April. We decided it was April 11th, uh, 2020. What does the world mm -hmm. look like in two weeks? Yeah. Uh, at least locally here, um, I'd say it gets closer to something like normal. Um, I was down in Great Falls here uh, Wednesday, and I was kind of surprised at how um, complacent people were relative to where they were a week or two prior to that. Um, so I, I think that this new normal has kind of set in, and um, I I don't know that our restaurants and things like that, the service entries so much are, are going to be open in two weeks, but the, the rest of society seems to have just kind of dropped into this groove and is slowly emerging from it. Um, so I, I, I don't see a big change in two weeks, um, at least locally here. Um, and, and from a farm perspective, you know, it's, we, we work by the seasons. Uh, so, it's coming into the planting season and guys get busy and you, you go whether you can or not just because your time windows are so critical for getting the, the plants in the ground. We, we operate within that glowing, growing season. And if you're two weeks late, your entire crop is affected by that. So at least in the ag community, uh, things are going to get back to normal 
I would say 95% just because of the biological aspect of farming. And then the rest of the world, will they still be uh, in their houses? Will will there be a strong state lockdown in Missouri and Illinois and these other places? I, I would expect that it's that continues um i again we get back to this thing of of what's that deadline you know what what's the benchmark do, do we have a number that is um that is the peak number or do we have a number that is once the curve has flattened or started to bend in this at this radius is that the number right i I, i'm not seeing that yet and so until we get some sort of definable metric i i don't see the the defensive strategy is really backing off too much. Um, I, I I don't know if I see them ramping up unless there's all of a sudden a huge spike in either uh, disease acquisition or mortality. Yeah, I think that there's the the. It's funny to see them say, "Hey, our best thing that we have to fight the virus is everybody staying at home." Well, even if you flatline it, then if your best defense is everybody still stay at home, that's going to be what they're doing. I, I put out on Twitter the question, you know, what would you do if quarantine, if you knew that quarantine was going to go on for 18 months? And uh, I, I'm not putting that out there because I want that to happen or even that I think that it'll happen. I really don't know. I, I doubt it. I think it'll be within a year that we'll be out of this, but maybe not. I, I wanted to see the thought experiment to say, what would people start changing and pivoting about their lives? Because as soon as you know what pivot you're going to have to make, just like you talked about with your letter on farming, it's good to make that pivot. Even if it doesn't feel good at first, it's going to someplace better. So it's trying to figure out what, what do I think the world is going to be like? And if it does stay like this for a while, how should I adjust my life to be better adapted to it? Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know if I have any well-formulated thoughts on it, but as I look at um, particularly the food industry and some of the um, gyrations we're seeing within that industry as, as we see meat plants shutting down or throttling way back and things like that, I, um, you start to look at the sustainability of what our, our supply lines look like and um, you know, certainly we've seen the, the food service parallel track just get evaporated. And so food is looking for a home. We see this, um, this, this odd problem of having too much food and yet shortages in these other places. So uh, that's the part of this that really concerns me is that our, our, our fundamental supply lines or just in time supply lines are, um, They've been coping, and they're 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 adequate to cope for a while. But if we're in this situation for eighteen months, uh, oh, I I get pretty concerned about how we we feed these really dense populations, how we get the food into those populations, and and how that whole supply chain works. Because you know, I we were talking here a couple of weeks ago about the efficiency of our our U.S. and even the global supply chain, how we're we operate at probably as close to a hundred percent efficiency as, as it's possible to get, um, you know, and so now we start to see all these links in that supply chain that are critical links, either get stretched or in some cases break. 
over a very short amount of time. And, you know, we're only a couple months into this thing. I, I don't, it's, it spooks me to think what 18 months of that stretching and breaking looks like. Well, and then how you rebuild that supply chain. Yeah. I mean like that, that, so it strikes me that, um, our local grocery store had, uh, a COVID patient. Somebody came up positive and they'd been working in that store and that store, mm-hmm. I, I think now is going through like extensive cleaning and they're going to have to move around some workers, but they're planning to get back and going. And so on the one hand, I wonder is the, is the meat packing industry, is that the way they're going to be able to do it? Some people get sick. You just send everybody home, clean everything, and then bring them back and work because that's what they're doing at the grocery stores right now. But that's because they have to, um, I don't know if that's going to be the way that we capture and stop it or if my local grocery store is now going to have five guys go down because those first people spread it around while they were before they knew they had it. What do you, what do you think is are are our packing plants going to get shut down or are places where work gets done not going to be able to do it because of the disease? There's certainly that worry man it is for as doom and gloom as I was just talking about um you have to step back also and look at what has made this country function, and that is, in fact, all those, all these businesses and business structures that, that frankly, are that supply line, and their their motivation is to work and to function at the highest level that they possibly can. So, the the inertia on on any of these businesses is to get back to a to an increased rate of function, and you know there's an economic incentive to do that. There's a financial incentive to do that. There's, I, I would say there's a, there's a intrinsically human spiritual inertia to do that because people, people tr- want to thrive. They try to thrive. They try to, to ultimately do the, the best they can for themselves. And so there's, there's this, uh, that inertia I think is going to, to continue to push the system, um, even against some of this momentum back to its, uh, maybe not to equilibrium, but at least closer to a center that is functional at at a um, at a functional, if not an optimal, uh, level. So I, you know, there's we, we can look at all the things that could break, but we can also look at all the things that make the system work against pressure and against friction, and you know, so that there's there's actually some optimism out there. I see in in the very friction that's that's happening because the the, the the normal center is 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 the inertia of that is headed towards this this improved function. Hell yeah, man! That is a great way to look at it. That's the that is actually the American spirit, and kind of defines that everybody's here because they came from somebody else to because they they had to pivot and make a better life for themselves. And uh, man, that that uh, that's the most hopeful thing I've heard all week. And I think I'm gonna. I'm going to wrap up on that, man. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for spending Saturday night hanging out. Absolutely, man. It's always a pleasure to visit. And if people wanted to uh, find you on Twitter or read the article that you were that you and I were talking about before. Uh, my Twitter handle is LyleBenjamin4. So at LyleBenjamin4. And it's pretty close to the top of my feed. And it's, as you said earlier, it's it's probably blowing up. So it's it's probably still very much at the top of my feed. So, uh, and that, that article is, uh, it, there, it's a thread that's about uh, 
I think there's 15 or 20 uh, tweets that make that comprise it. Well, it is the most uh, candid, uh, authentic piece of writing maybe I've ever read. And it was very clear. And I think it doesn't matter whether you're in farming or not. You know what it is to, to tell everybody, hey, I'm making a change. And uh, this is the pivot I'm making. So I think everybody is better because you were willing to write that. Thank you, Vance. I, I hope that it makes a difference to to the people that need to read it. Well, amen, brother. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you later. Be safe out there. Ah!